Well, it turns out Christianity was always cooler than I thought. I, I yeah. thought it was for stupid people. It turns out it's the most intellectually robust system of thought that humans have ever encountered. Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Welcome to today's episode of Christ and Culture. My name is Benjamin Quinn. And I'm Nathaniel Williams, the editor and content manager here at the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture. Today we'll be talking with Rachel Gilson. Rachel is a student here at Southeastern, but also author of the book, Born Again This Way, Coming Out, Coming to Faith, and What Comes Next. Rachel is a dear friend to Southeastern as well as to the Center for Faith and Culture, and I think you'll love hearing about her story. After that, we're going to have another edition of On My Bookshelf. But first, we want to begin this episode with our new segment called Together We Go. In this segment, we want to highlight students, alumni, and friends of Southeastern Seminary who work in everyday vocations. And we want to share how they're using their work to help fulfill the Great Commission. Today's guest on Together We Go is Emily Harrison. I am the Administrative Assistant for the Center for Faith and Culture. So I spend my days dealing with finances, event coordinating, and just managing whatever else I'm told to do. So for me, I've been in this job almost eight years, and I've kind of learned over the last few years that the gifts that I was told I had on my spiritual gift survey as a 12-year-old are kind of what I do now. So I thoroughly enjoy administrative things, planning, and hospitality. So being able to make people feel welcome and cared for um, has just been a great part of this job. Um, And then even to use those things in my ministry context, I'm on the women's ministry team at my church, and I do a lot of those same things. So event planning, um, hospitality, and so working in the CFC helps me to strengthen those things and do better in other areas of my life with those gifts. Here is one way you can pray for me currently. I have a six-year-old boy who is in his final days of kindergarten. And currently we have several questions that he asks. The main one being, when can I have a snack? But he also asks um, every month we take the Lord's Supper at church and he is in service with us. So often he asks us why he can't take um, communion or when he sees baptisms, why he can't do that when he believes in Jesus. And so for us, it's just those really um, helpful salvation conversations But the prayer request is just that one, he comes to know who Jesus is and what he's done for him and that we as his parents can guide those conversations well and and meaningful for him. I'm Emily Harrison and together we go. Emily Harrison serves as the administrative assistant at the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture. And Emily is one of those people that helps make all of the CFC's work possible. So thank you, Emily, for all of your work that you do here at the Center for Faith and Culture. One final note before we jump into our conversation with Rachel Gilson. The initial cut of our conversation with Rachel was over an hour long. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to split up our conversation with Rachel into two different episodes. This week, in part one, Rachel will tell us her remarkable story of conversion, of God's grace, and the power of the gospel. 
What does it mean to be a man or a woman? For most of the history of the world, the vast majority of it, in fact, this has been a pretty straightforward question. But nowadays we have to ask, are these categories, man, woman, male, female, and so on, are these flexible categories? Are these things that are up for debate? And more importantly, as Christians, what does the Bible have to say about these kinds of questions? Today, we're delighted to have with us Rachel Gilson, a friend, a student at Southeastern, and also a person who works in this area quite often, especially with college students, to discuss this topic. Rachel works for Crew on the leadership team for theological development and culture. She's also the author of Born Again This Way, Coming Out, Coming to Faith, and What Comes Next. And she's pursuing a PhD here at Southeastern, exploring these kinds of questions. Rachel, we really appreciate you joining us today. Yeah, it's my pleasure to be with you. First, Rachel, this this may end up becoming two podcasts, as we talked about <laughs> before we started recording. But first, just start out, tell us your story. Why, why is this of interest to you? And what is your story leading into this? Yeah, I think that's a really valid question, because when we're talking about transgender identities, it can be really helpful to talk to people who might embrace a transgender identity or someone who experiences gender dysphoria. And I don't have either of those experiences. So you might think, well, why the heck am I, why the heck am I into this? Part of the background comes from the fact that I personally experience a different part of the LGBT acronym. I think folks are generally familiar with LGBT, LGBT+, LGBTQ. There's a lot of different ways the acronym can look. But the front part of the acronym, LGB, refers to lesbian, gay, bisexual. And I am a same-sex attracted disciple. I came to Christ during my freshman year at Yale. I, you know, by the end of high school, was a very committed atheist. I was in romantic and sexual relationships with other young women. So even though this was 2003, 2004, right before we really started picking up steam on the legalization of same-sex marriage in America, I kind of knew history was going my direction. The future was with me. And so I was excited to be married to a woman someday. And I really, I, I just thought Christians were stupid bigots. I just had terrible stereotypes against who Christians were, kind of didn't, didn't think of Christians as thoughtful people, didn't think of Christians as empathetic or welcoming people. And that was true, even though I had never been mistreated by a Christian for my sexuality. I didn't grow up in a Christian household, so I didn't have that uh, background either. I got to Yale, which, you know, in many ways you'd think be like a perfectly happy place for uh, an atheist, a same-sex attracted atheist, which in many ways it absolutely is. But God and his kindness just blew me to pieces while I was there. So on the one hand, I discovered that if you go to a super mediocre public school in nowhere, California, and then transition to going to one of the best universities in the world, you probably won't be the smartest person there. I was like suddenly in these rooms where I was like, oh no, everyone is smarter than me. This is really bad. <laughs> so that part of my self-identity just crumbled into a pile. And the other uh, thing that happened during my freshman year was the girl I was dating at the time who I was obsessed with, uh, she broke up with me. You know, teenage breakups are very dramatic. She left me for this guy who lived in a van and hadn't graduated high school. So that didn't feel particularly good. It sounds like a Saturday Night Live skit, Rachel. Oh, like, but really, except it was my own life. So now I'm (laughs) laughing at the time. It was not particularly funny, as you might imagine. So I was just sitting, I was just like drowning in a, a pity pile, you know, and 
Uh, it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to turn to Jesus because I didn't believe in Jesus. You know, I thought I needed to like get a hobby or go to the gym more or something like this. But really early in second semester of my freshman year, it's possible it was the first lecture back. I'm not even sure. I was taking a class through Western philosophy. And so we were talking about Descartes, you know, the old dead French guy who invented the phrase, I think, therefore I am. And I remember sitting in the audience, hearing about Descartes and hearing about how he uh, developed this whole proof for the existence of God, starting from that famous phrase. I remember sitting in the audience thinking, well, that's a really stupid proof for the existence of God, which I still happen to think. But I also felt sort of offended that it was a proof for the existence of God that I'd never heard before. Like, I, I thought I knew basically the the main ones and confident in my atheism thought they were all stupid but I was like wait a minute what this means there are other arguments out there that I'm not familiar with it it kind of unsettled me and so I'm a millennial so obviously the right answer was to google it you know but I was was pretty ashamed so I would sort of secretly google like when no one was looking open my giant Dell laptop and just fire religious search terms and uh, slam it shut pretend to be do something else my roommates walked in and I just kept on those Google searches, I just kept coming back to reading about Jesus, which I had this caricature of Jesus, you know, like he was a ancient George W. Bush wrapped in a toga, which for a, for a progressive at the, at the time was not a particularly good image, you know, just cartoon and ridiculous. When I was reading about Jesus, I kept coming across a character who was actually pretty compelling, intelligent, kind of witty. I, I felt like kind of icky, like, oh, like I want to marry a woman someday. I'm not allowed to be attracted or not attracted to, but drawn towards Jesus, you know? So the only two Christians I knew at Yale or people who identify as Christians anyway, were these two women who were dating each other. And one of them was training to be a Lutheran minister. And so I, I was like, well, maybe there is, maybe there's a possibility here to like be interested in Jesus and, and also have this type of sexuality. So I went to them. I was like, this doesn't seem like it makes sense to me, but, but you know, y'all explain it to me and then I'll, I'll understand. And they, they were so kind, you know, and they were like, oh yeah, it's all been a big misunderstanding. The Bible actually affirms monogamous uh, gay relationships. I thought that was really fascinating. And they gave me a packet explaining the correct way to interpret the Bible. And I love a packet, you know, so I took this thing back to my room. I was ripping through it. And the packet itself really seemed to make a lot of sense. Like it it had a lot of internal cohesion. I could understand where it was going. But I also thought, well, maybe I should like look at the Bible itself and and see what it, see what it says. As a history major, you're supposed to look at the documents. I didn't actually have a Bible. So I was just pulling it up on my computer. As I was reading the texts themselves and then comparing them to the packet, I was like, oh, I don't actually think this is a very good interpretation of these original texts, which really, frankly, bummed me out. I felt sort of stupid. I was like, yeah, this is all just wishful thinking. I remember throwing the packet into my cheap little dorm trash can being like, never mind. The Bible definitely does not say you can have a monogamous gay relationship. So let me ask you Lord. about that. Let me ask yeah. you about that. At that point, having not been in a Christian home, not a whole lot yeah. of Christian background, yeah. but, you, but you still assumed that there is something exclusive about connecting oneself to Christ or committing oneself to Christ that, that prohibited same-sex active same-sex relationships. Yeah. I absolutely had a connection in my mind that Christianity was against gay relationships. 
Now, where exactly that came from, I don't know, because it's not like I'd studied it. It probably was mostly cultural, but that was my default starting position. So I, when I encountered a potential biblical argument for gay relationships, I thought, well, gosh, maybe there's something to this. And I was excited going in. But when I came out the other side, actually looking at the Bible, I was like, no, I don't. I mean, these girls are sweet. I just don't think that's what the Bible shows. And so yeah. I was left kind of in and lurch. Before, this is before you're a Christian. So you're just, you're just oh, yeah. an honest, semi-intellectual trying to read. I don't mean that. Yeah. You're, just, you're an honest, <laughs> intellectual trying, just reading the script, just, just the plain sense of the text. And you're walking yeah. away bummed out because you're like, Look, I'm not even a Christian and I can tell that's just not what that means. Yeah, exactly. And so I was like, what? I mean, whatever, of course not. You know, I'm cynical. So that was kind of the direction I went. So a little while after that, I mean, probably not even a week. I'm not exactly sure. It's hard to remember. I happened to be in the in the room of a friend of mine who was a non-practicing Catholic. And so I remember standing in her doorway. She was further into her room, like putting something in her bag or something. We were going to walk somewhere. We weren't particularly close, but right next to her doorway inside her room, there was a bookshelf. And I, like one of my favorite hobbies is looking at people's bookshelves and judging them, which is why your office is great, uh, Benjamin, because you got, you got a ton of books. And so I I remember looking through and there was a book on her shelf called Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And I remember thinking, oh, I kind of want to read that book because previously I'd just been on the internet, you know, I was like, no, I should definitely read a book, but I was too embarrassed to reveal my interest to my friends. So I just stole the book, Mm. put it in my bag. You know, it's like not hard to do. I had no moral compass, whatever. So I was reading this book in the Sterling Memorial library between classes one day. And I don't remember what chapter I was in. I don't remember what page of the book I was on, anything like that. But I remember sitting there reading and suddenly being overwhelmed, understanding that Yes, there is a God, and he's not just some like store brand God or like Zeus or something, but the God who made me and made everything and is holy existed. And I didn't know the vocabulary word holy, but that sense of his perfection and uh, basically the account I was going to owe to him. Mm-hmm. And the only thing I felt in that moment was absolute fear because I knew I was a terrible person, you know, <laughs> arrogant. I lied all the time. I was sexually immoral. I was cruel to people. I was reading a stolen book. You know, it's like clearly all of the chips were in the were in the guilty category. So I just sat there, um, pretty unhappy for a couple moments. But really quickly, with that, I think the spirit also made clear to me. I'm not charismatic, but I'm not really sure how else I would have gotten this. But it also became clear to me that part of the reason. Jesus had come was to place himself as a barrier between God's wrath and me. Mm. And so that the only way to be safe was to run towards Jesus, not away from him. And pretty quickly, I was like, I don't want to become a Christian. Christians are really lame. (laughs) At the same time, I was like, okay, but I'm not going to get a better deal than this. Like, this is a good deal. (laughs) I kind of, I should shake this guy's hand basically. And so I just sort of, closed my eyes and was like, fine, I'll become a Christian. And then I went off, I went off to class, you know, but praise the Lord. I saw later that day, a little advertisement tacked up outside one of the dining halls for Yale students for Christ. It's Yale's crew group. Uh, they were going to be having a Valentine's party. And so I met them. I just followed them around like a baby quail for the rest of the semester, learning how to be a Christian, you know, like, when do you hug? What songs you sing? I mean, 
who Jesus is, prayer, Bible, all that stuff. That's incredible. So you, you thought, uh, I don't want to be a Christian. Christianity's lame. So <laughs> but you become a Christian and then you set out. You didn't say it this way, but I know you well enough to know you set out to make Christianity cool again. Um, <laughs> well, it turns out Christianity was always cooler than I thought. I, I yeah. thought it was for stupid people. It turns out it's the most intellectually robust system of thought that humans have ever encountered, which is a, was a delight to discover, actually. Yeah, no doubt. So take us from that, from your journey at that point in the, right. the Sterling Memorial Library, you, the, the Lord turns the lights on for you and you commit your life to Christ almost in a moment right before class. Um, you begin to basically be discipled by this crusade group, which you, whom you still work for, you still work for crew. Oh yeah. Uh-huh. And I'm still good friends with all those people. Um, so was it, I mean, was it kind of walking in a bed of roses after that? All of the, <laughs> oh yeah, I, same sex attraction or these things just fall to the wayside? obeyed from that moment onward. <laughs> no, no. My first couple of years of discipleship were like literally an open dumpster fire. Like if I were my 36 year old self meeting with my 19 year old self, I'd be like, oh, this girl's not going to make it. But God was so gracious to me. It, it became pretty clear to me even soon after my conversion that like, oh, my same-sex attraction isn't going anywhere. And it's been 18 years and it hasn't gone anywhere. So a lot of the first part of my discipleship was just trying to figure out how am I going to thrive in Christ in the midst of these attractions? And, you know, being a young Christian, I was like, oh, okay, God, um, maybe we could work out a bargain. If you'll just tell me why you say no to same-sex romantic and sexual relationships, uh, then I will obey perfectly. Because you know, I'd read in the packet and I read the Bible and I saw that God said no to same sex sexual activity or relationships, that type of thing. Since learned Greek and Hebrew and turns out still says no, fine. I've never had a trouble with the fact the text says no. But what really troubled me was why, why does the text say no? To me, it just seemed arbitrary or cruel. Like I couldn't, before the phrase love is love was even a thing, I couldn't access it. And the Lord really pressed on me at this time functionally saying like, Hey, if you're, if you're only willing to obey when you understand and agree, maybe I'm not your God. Maybe you're your own God. That there was, there was something deeper I had to understand about obedience, which doesn't, which is not to say that like the only form of obedience is blind obedience. I don't think that's true, but there was something happening in my heart where I was trying to hold something over God's head. And he, again and again at that time, he brought me back to um, the story of the garden with Adam and Eve, because it's really interesting setup there. You know, he places Adam and Eve in this beautiful place, gives them a glorious commission. And he only gives them one written, well, it's not written, I suppose it's spoken, but, but one prohibition. And for me, this was really helpful to see that it actually, faith was required for our relationship with God even before sin entered the world. Because you could imagine a scenario where the one prohibition makes more intuitive sense to us. Like, mm, here's your rule, guys. Like, don't murder each other. And you'd be like, yes, this is a very good rule because murder is yucky. And then you wouldn't be able to fulfill your commission of filling the earth. And, you know, most people intuitively know that murder is wrong. If someone doesn't know that, right, they need to, they need to seek help. But God's prohibition was actually don't eat the fruit of this tree in the midst of the garden. The day you eat it, you're going to die. 
remember early on reflecting, like even vegans eat fruit. Like it's a it's a weird, it's a weird prohibition. You actually you can't really obey it unless you trust God is for you because it if you press on it too much, it doesn't make obvious sense on the sur- on the surface. And this is yeah. exactly what the serpent does. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It seems it, to your point earlier, it, even the, the point about the, the forbidden fruit off of the, the forbidden tree is even more arbitrary, even to <laughs> your point about, you know, why not same sex right. and all the rest. And yeah, you're right. Going back to the garden, even before Genesis three, God has put this prohibition in place and he gives no explanation for it. It seems quite arbitrary. And yet to your point, a part of our obedience is trusting in his goodness and confidence. Well, and because you have to actually trust his character in order to obey that command. Yeah. It's actually about who he is. And so the serpent, when he goes to Eve, he gets her to look, you know, it looks good. It's going to be desires to eat. It's desires to make her wise. Like she's got all this data about why she should eat the fruit. And the only thing she has on the other side is God's word saying, if you do this, you're going to die. Yeah. And I felt like I was in the same spot. I had all these reasons why I should say yes to my same-sex attraction. And the only thing I had on the other side was God's word saying, if you do this, you're going to die. And we know it's a tricky type of death. It's not like Adam and Eve ate it and fell down dead. It was a, it was a deeper, more, more serious death. And so it pressed me again and again into, can I trust him? And Adam and Eve had the data. They should have been able to see that God was for them and not against them. Enough to ride them through the fact that the actual command maybe didn't make sense on one level. And so it pressed me into the person of Christ. Like, can I trust him? That was really good for me developmentally because I think it, it protected me from making the conversation overly about the particular texts that say no or, or this type of thing and grounded me instead on his character, which I think is the, the safest place to be. And that's not because the texts that say no aren't clear. It's yeah. just, I think the firmer foundation is Christ himself. And yet, so you, you kind of introduced yourself at the beginning of this as I am, I am not was, but I am a same sex attracted disciple. And so to be clear, you didn't come to this conclusion, both in heart and mind. And then after some period of time, all of a sudden this was taken away. This is still, you said you're 36 years old now, and this is still a daily, a daily struggle, a daily fight. How how would you argue? No, that's, that's a great question. So is it a daily struggle? No, I would say early in my 20s, it was a daily struggle. Um, and sometimes I struggle with it the same way I struggle with a cheeseburger when I'm really hungry, which is giving me <laughs> you know, there, was, there was disobedience that needed to be worked, like that I needed to repent of and seek out uh, God's means of grace to recover from. So now I would say, Sometimes people refer to this experience as struggling with same-sex attraction. So at one point in my life, I would say I struggled with it. Now I would say I more experience it. Like, so I've been married to um, my husband, Andrew, for 14 and a half years. Now, God didn't have to change all of my attractions in order to equip me to be married to this one man. He just needed to equip me to be married to this one man. It's been very good. So the experience I would say is in the event that I happen to notice or experience an attraction to someone who's not my spouse, it's inevitably a female. By God's grace, that doesn't really happen that much anymore. Um, Maybe that's because I'm a PhD student. I'm too tired to feel any sorts of attractions (laughs) to anyone. 
uh, I'd like to think that maybe it's <laughs> growth over time and being able to train train myself even when I notice that attraction to to say when I notice the attraction to say no to the desire and yes to Christ and that it's taken a long time so it's one of the things where it's like well no it's not really a I probably more daily struggle with selfishness and, and treating my daughter well those types of things um but it's still an experience that um yeah. that's with me it's part of my discipleship journey to steward it well I think just give me the quick version of how you and Andrew met, how that, how those conversations. <laughs> sure. Um, I just love to hear how that, how that all came together. Yeah. Andrew and I met on a crew summer mission when we were 19 years old to Yellowstone national park. And when we were at the park, it's not like it was love at first sight. <laughs> we, but we were friends though. Uh, and after the, after the mission, he, um, he went to a different undergrad than I did. He was at university of New Hampshire afterwards. He reached out to me at a time where I was, um, I was really low. He was, uh, he sort of reentered my life and started pursuing me. And I was like, oh my goodness, I don't want to be, I, how do I even deal with this? But the Lord moved very clearly to communicate to me like, no, I, I want you to marry Andrew. So I actually married him really before I fell in love with him. And I loved him. We had a lot in common, but I would say there wasn't like a falling in love first. Um, so it's been, I mean, my marriage has been probably one of the biggest blessings to me that God has given. And that hasn't always been the case for same-sex attracted people who entered into male-female marriage. Sometimes sometimes people were sort of pressured into those marriages or they, or they were told that uh, getting married to someone of the opposite sex would make you straight, things like that. Um, the Bible never communicates anything about that. And a guy can make people straight. That's something that he can choose to do. Most often he doesn't seem to do it. Instead of sort of pressuring ourselves to become straight, because honestly, I don't know if you've met any straight people, but they struggle with sexual sin just as much as anybody else. Really, it's more about no matter who we're attracted to, men or women or potted plants or whatever, it's about stewarding our moral responsibility to, to what God's called us to, either faithful singleness or, or faithful marriage. Yeah. Let me ask you this. As you were talking about that, and you're talking about, you know, I married Andrew before I, quote unquote, fell in love with him, and perhaps in the more romantic sense that we might think right. of now. Um, it, it makes me think of, for example, Francis of Assisi. So when he decides to become uh, the sort of impoverished monastic that he does, he'll, he uses the language of wedding himself to lady poverty. And he'll oh, say, interesting. I've, I've yeah. Chosen, I've chosen this direction where I've, I've chosen to abandon all things material, even though he was from a wealthy family, he stood right. to inherit all the rest of it. But he, he chose to abandon that and to marry or commit himself to this lifestyle of poverty, not suggesting for a second. I don't think anyone would read that historically and say, no, he, he was never attracted to material things. He never wished that he yeah, had right. or whatever, but he had so committed himself to this, that there's a freedom that was found in that, in that commitment, in that quote unquote marriage to lady poverty. Yeah. Would you articulate something similar in, in your relationship with Andrew and committing to marry him at that time? Well, you know, I was telling my story to a, a Christian friend of mine a couple of years ago, and she she kind of turned around her head and she was like, it's almost like 
you're in an arranged marriage, but God arranged it instead of your parents. <laughs> but her point was like, uh, there are cultures that, you know, host arranged marriages. And in that case, marriages are often really strong because there isn't this, oh, everything has to weigh on this romantic feeling, which frankly, isn't guaranteed to last forever. But but it is often a decision to live into this thing that has been that has been given. I do think there was a lot of freedom in acknowledging and, and having conversations with Andrew about like, well, what is marriage for? Because it wasn't all wrapped up in giant butterflies. Yeah. Uh, instead, we could actually talk about what is marriage for? It's about, it's about displaying the gospel. It's about working together um, to paint that picture. And we, we feel like what God was calling us to do in ministry, we could do better together than separate. And in fact, that he had designed it that way. Which doesn't say marriage is the only good way to live. Like, I think in the New Testament, you can make a good case that singleness is varsity team and marriage is JV, or they're at least equal. But there was something really powerful in that. And so I do think it created, it released a lot of unhealthy expectations about what marriage should be. And I think allowed us to enter in. I mean, frankly, we got married right when we turned 22. So we grew up together. So we needed a not very expectation heavy um, picture of what marital bliss would be. It's, it's interesting you mentioned that about arranged marriages. As you were talking, I was thinking about that very thing. And uh, not long ago, I talked with a, a, a Christian friend who's originally from India. The short version of the story is he becomes a Christian and then his sister becomes a Christian. And while his parents aren't necessarily proud of their decision, they kind of accept it. But they said to him, because it's an arranged marriage culture, they right. said, Since we don't know any Christians. You're now responsible for finding a husband for your sister. And oh, wow. Yeah. Because they talked about like you. He said, where I'm from, you basically run, you know, advertisements in the newspaper. And he was like, I didn't know what to say. I have a Christian sister. I didn't. But the long, the, the short version of the story is he ended up, uh, they ended up finding a, a guy who was a strong believer. They basically arranged the marriage. They kind of had the initial meeting. They decided to get married. And he's telling this years later and saying they had one of the strongest marriages I've ever seen. And for wow. Americans, that's so hard for us to understand. It sounds wrong. It sounds wrong. And actually, honestly, the theme because we, we value freedom and that relates to the transgender conversation. Freedom is so embedded in us as part of our moral intuition that the idea of an arranged marriage feels offensive. Yes, that's right. And yet uh, it's like James one talking about the law of liberty that yes, that's right. law, that thing which constrains our freedom, but actually there's something liberating about the law of Christ. It's Psalm 119 cents. That's right. That's so, right. What do the scriptures and sciences tell us about the value of human life? If you are attending this year's Southern Baptist Convention in Anaheim, California, please do plan to join us for Valuing Life, Insights from the Bible and Science. This is a special Center for Faith and Culture event at the Southern Baptist Convention. We will explore issues about human personhood from a biblical, scientific, legal, and personal angles. Speakers include Elizabeth Graham from the ERLC, Denise Harrell from the Alliance for Defending Freedom, Aaron Smith, a developmental psychologist from California Baptist University, and others as well. The event is completely free, so if you plan to attend the SBC annual meeting, join us Tuesday evening, June the 14th at 7.30 p.m. You can learn more about this at cfc.scbts.edu or click the link in our show notes. See you there.
And now it's time for our segment called On My Bookshelf. This is the part of the show where professors at Southeastern tell you what they are reading right now. Dr. Quinn, what's on your bookshelf this week? I'm going to do something a little different here, Nathaniel. Rocking the boat. uh, Rocking rocking the the boat. boat. That's right. It's not actually a book. I want to mention two periodicals that our listeners may find interesting. And uh, what do we call this when it's uh, a non-sponsor? So (laughs) non-spawn? This is not sponsored. (laughs) No one's paying us for this. That's right. So these are friends of ours from both sides of the pond. The first one uh, comes out of what's called the Kirby Lang Center for Public Theology, based out of Cambridge in the U.K., Uh, It's led by Dr. Craig Bartholomew, who is a former supervisor and mentor of mine, but also a good friend to us at Southeastern. Uh, His center there, the Kirby Lang Center for Public Theology, puts out what they call the Big Picture magazine several times per year, and it's some of the most creative stuff that I've ever seen. Um, If you were to pick up a copy of the Big Picture magazine, you can also get it online for free. Um, But if you were to read through it, it's anything from thoughtful articles on how we consider politics for today— how we consider cultural engagement for today. But my favorite, most recent article, Nathaniel, you'll appreciate this, was just a a Christian reflection on baseball. It was one of my favorites because, you know, sometimes we hear the argument that baseball needs to be sped up. They need to, you know, they need to have like a pitch count or a certain amount of time that they have between pitches. And it was actually a, a person from College of the Ozarks in Arkansas that wrote a piece just reflecting on this, that actually the rhythm of baseball uh, mirrors the rhythm of life, where a bad pitch, we pause, we reflect on that, we turn around and we try again. Or a bad swing, strike and a miss, and we turn around and reflect on that, we try again. And the rhythm of that very game actually mirrors and maps on well to the kind of rhythm of life that we have and the thoughtfulness that we ought to incorporate into that as Christians. If you were to read through the Big Picture magazine, it might be things on baseball, it might be things on art, uh, there might be poetry and music in there. Uh, so it's just really good stuff. Another, let me pivot to uh, the United States, Uh, the Davenant Institute. These are some friends as well, based out of South Carolina, although they have people uh, spread across the the globe as well. Uh, But they put out uh, a magazine as well called Ad Fontes. That's A-D-F-O-N-T-E-S. It's just a Latin phrase that means back to the sources. And their Ad Fontes uh, periodical that they put out, similarly, not, not quite as much of the sort of creative flair as the big picture magazine, um, but they're, in fact, I saw that just recently their most recent issue does have some fresh poetry in it, but also they have reflections on uh, theology, culture, politics. You could read something about 16th century Reformation thought, or you might read something on uh, how do we watch the most recent Batman movies and Marvel movies and what do we learn from C.S. Lewis and anything in between. So I really just want to highlight some friends. Again, they, they didn't ask us to do this, so this is a non-spawn uh, comment. Uh, But these are friends of ours that are doing really good work, and I'd recommend looking into their periodicals. And for the average listener who's listening and thinking, I don't know where to find periodicals, how would they go about finding these things? Kirby Lang, simply Google both of these. So the Kirby Lang uh, Center for Public Theology, go to their website. It will show you their big picture magazine. Uh, Same with uh, the Davenant Institute. So you can just type in Davenant Institute, and you can find their Ad Fontes magazine uh, or periodical there on their website. Excellent. Well, thank you for that out-of-the-box recommendation, Dr. Quinn. And thank you all for listening today. Do us a huge favor. Go to Apple Podcasts. Give us a five-star rating, brief review. Doing that is a huge, huge blessing to us, and it helps other people find the Christ and Culture podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.